This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. How is the U.S. General Services Administration's Public Buildings Service, PBS, adapting to the changing customer expectations arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic? What is PBS doing to deliver innovative workspaces necessary to meet the varied mission of its federal agency customers? And how important are flexible workspaces and modular offices to today's federal agency leaders? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dan Matthews, Commissioner of GSA's Public Buildings Service. Dan, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. So let's start off by learning more about your organization. Would you describe the mission and continued evolution of the U.S. General Services Administration's Public Buildings Service, PBS? Sure, I'd be happy to. It's the easiest way to think of it is two things, mission and money. So on the first hand, we provide real estate so agencies uh, can deliver on their mission, but we also have a fiduciary responsibility. Right? We were created to help add value to the federal real estate portfolio with the presumption that centralized organization that has expertise in real estate and government acquisition can do it for less money than every agency just trying to figure out on their own when their specialties lie somewhere else. So it's helping agencies achieve their mission by providing the real estate they need and doing it at a better value than they can for themselves, the, their mission, and the taxpayer. Thanks, Dan. That's an important mission. With such a critical mission, I'd like to understand more of the operational footprint of PBS. Would you tell us more about how it's organized, the mix and size of its real estate portfolio, overall budget, and more importantly, how is PBS funded? How do you fund your operations? Sure, it's a great question. We are a very large real estate portfolio. Uh, we span the, the continental United States, including the territories. So we're building a, a courthouse in Mariana Island, in Saipan, and we're also uh, building a courthouse uh, uh, addition and renovation in the Caribbean, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, in St. Croix, So in, in every 50 state in between. So it's a very broad portfolio. It consists of uh, roughly 370 million square feet, rentable square feet. Uh, we have over 8,800 assets, and we have a regional structure. So that means we've got 11 regional offices in the headquarters office. And so our work, our mission is, is actually delivered in the regions. And the headquarters' primary purpose is for policy development, to create the conditions where our regions can be successful, and to help enable those the regions to create the tools, the, the training, the, the personnel that they need to deliver on that mission. We're primarily funded 
through rent. So Congress was, I think, did a great a great idea a long time ago when they created GSA and the public building service. And so we charge our customers rent, our tenant agencies rent. We collect that rent and we're authorized to spend that money uh, to renovate our uh, portfolio, to keep it in good working condition, to operate it, to pay our salaries. So if, if we're not able to control our costs and operate within uh, that revenue stream, it doesn't work. So we have uh, incentives that are aligned. We're, we're aligned to, uh, to have a lean, effective, productive organization. And our tenant agencies, because they pay rent, have, have an alignment or a, um, an incentive not to let their real estate costs get completely out of control because they have, that competes with their other costs, their personnel, technology, other things like that. So, Dan, I'd like to focus more on your specific responsibilities as commissioner of the public buildings service. What are your duties and responsibilities? And more importantly, could you tell us more about a, a week in the life of a PBS commissioner and how does it support the overall mission of GSA? Right. So, number one, I try and stay focused on the big picture. What are we trying to accomplish? What's our purpose? What's our mission? You know, w- when I was hired, I was interviewed. They asked me, what would you do? I said, well, my goal would be to save $5 billion over the life of the transactions that we execute during the time that we would have there. Uh, there's to make a long story short, we've got excess capacity in our real estate portfolio. That creates an opportunity to restructure that portfolio so that it's smaller, better quality, better utilized, and more productive uh, so we can return value to the agencies and to the taxpayer. And so as a leader of this organization, you really need to focus and align the organization towards achieving that mission. And that's a full-time job. Uh, keep the agency focused direct the resources of the enterprise towards that. And then externally, the real challenge is to create those conditions where the public building service can be successful. So you need to make sure you've got enough resources for your people to be able to execute the work, got the right technology, so they can manage the buildings efficiently, manage that massive portfolio of both owned and leased properties. Uh, we manage lots of projects, billions of dollars of construction every year. You need the right IT to do that. Uh, you need the right training, uh, right capabilities. So that's really what we focus on. And then, of course, you've got your, your customers externally as well. We need to make sure that the real estate meets their mission. That's why we're here. And so uh, that's probably the, the third leg of that stool. So regarding your responsibilities and duties, Dan, what are the top three challenges you face in your position? And how have you sought to address those challenges? I'd say there are three big things, Right. Number one is getting the resources that we need to effectively do our job. So I talked about how Congress established us, we charge rent from our customer agencies, and that rent, we have to use that to operate. So we've got all our operating expenses, we pay utilities, we have to clean buildings, we have to operate and maintain buildings. And what's left over, our net operating income becomes our capital to reinvest into the portfolio. So renovations, new construction, things like that. Uh, but for the last nine years or so, Congress has, uh, this is a, a relatively new development, Congress has constrained our ability to access those revenues. They've shorted us about a billion dollars a year, and that's made it very difficult. Well, essentially, it's taken a billion dollars out of our capital reinvestment. So that's one of our biggest challenges, trying to have the system operate the way it was established in law, get full access to what we call the Federal Buildings Fund, which is where those rent revenues go. Uh, and another really big issue accurate and timely data. We need good data to properly and effectively manage our facilities, both from like a day-to-day operating status, but longer term, 
What should our portfolio look like in the future? What is the true demand, occupancy demand for our facilities? There is excess capacity in our portfolio. That drives excess costs. So our goal is to squeeze that excess capacity out and return that value to the agency so they can achieve their mission and to the taxpayer. Good data is critical for that. The other thing I would say is balancing the needs of our tenants and our responsibility to the taxpayer. That's always a little bit of a tightrope. Depending on who you're working with in an agency, they may have to be extremely motivated to reduce real estate costs. If you're talking to a deputy secretary, a chief financial officer, they're trying to achieve their mission, which isn't real estate, something else. Real estate is a cost that consumes resources and probably makes it a little more difficult for them to direct resources to achieve their mission. But at a different level in the organization, someone consumes that real estate. And they may not be fully incentivized or aligned to reduce that that cost. So that is an inherent challenge in managing a federal real estate portfolio. Federal government, we're dealing with other people's money. Right? This isn't corporate money, this isn't their money. They reduce their real estate costs. A large bonus doesn't come through for anyone. So sometimes that can be challenging to align the incentives in the right way to do the right thing by the taxpayer and the agencies. And so we work with agencies all the time to try and show them where opportunity lies. And if we did X, Y, and Z, how that can return value for them. So Dan, what has surprised you most since taking over your role as PBS commissioner? I'll point out one particular story that really, really surprised me. Um, we have over 7,000 private sector leases in our portfolio. Remember I said we have about 300 million square feet under our control. About half of that is owned by the federal government. The other half of that, we lease from private sector building owners for our tenants. So it's a lot of leases. Uh, again, all about 1,700 total leases. Um, and when I arrived here, uh, those leases expire. You know, they, they all have firm terms. And at some point, those leases expire, and you have to renew them or replace them or eliminate them. You have to do something. Over 50% of those expiring leases, we would replace with short-term extensions. And when you replace long-term lease with a short-term extension, a couple things happen. You usually pay a price premium. Your leverage is really quite low at that point in time. They know you're not going anywhere, and you have to renew. And when you do a short-term extension, you're also not reducing your footprint. You're not consolidating. You're not changing anything for the most part. You're just hitting that red extend button and you pay a premium because you have more space than you probably need and you're paying a short-term extension premium for that. Over half of our leases were being lease transactions when a lease would expire. That's what we were doing. Uh, we made a, a real concerted effort to focus on that challenge. It's costing when you've got you know, 180 million square feet of leases that's a lot of money every year. And so we made a real concerted effort, a priority of our organization to tackle that problem, replace expiring leases with long-term solutions, right-size that footprint. Usually that means reducing it 20, 30, sometimes even 40, 50%, depending on the agency's needs, and go out there with a 10, 15, or maybe even a 20-year firm-term deal. And when you do that, there's massive competition for that GSA lease. GSA pays its rent bills on time a very attractive financial instrument for the private sector. Uh, when we put long-term leases like that, like that out on the market, a lot of competition and our pricing is, has been really good. So three years later, we are now replacing, we think this year we'll replace 80% of the expiring leases with a long-term solution as opposed to under 50% three years ago. And most significantly, historically, we would come in about 3% below the midpoint of the midpoint of the market on pricing, meaning instead of paying, you know, 
uh, $10 per foot, we would come in, you know, 3% below that. Now, last fiscal year, we came in almost 17% below the midpoint of market. Our strategy is working, it's driving competition, and uh, much better pricing from the private sector. And Dan, given your experience both in the private sector and now as PBS commissioner within GSA, what are the characteristics of an effective leader? That's a good question. And I've really learned a lot in the last three years. Uh, I thought I knew what those were when I got here. And uh, I think in a lot of ways, um, I was on the right track, but I certainly had something to learn. I'd say most importantly is you need to have the right goal or purpose. You need to know what you're trying to accomplish because you have to focus the enterprise on achieving that goal. And so it better be the right goal. You better have a, a good strategy that's going to deliver the value that you're trying to achieve. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. The second thing is you really need to align the organization and focus its efforts on achieving it. There are so many things going on in an organization as large as the public building service um, that can distract you from achieving that goal and the value that goes along with it. And so it takes a lot of discipline to stay focused and a lot of communication throughout your organization and alignment to direct it towards your resources, your people, your energy towards achieving that that goal. And then you also have to create the conditions for success. You have a great idea, good strategy, but if you don't actually have the the people, the the resources, and the tools to achieve it, then it's just a bunch of good ideas that will never get implemented. And implementation execution is a real is is a real struggle. You gotta have those first two things. But if you can't implement it, it doesn't really do anything. That means a lot of communication. You have to listen to people. Um, there's a lot of smart people in this organization. There's a lot of smart people in the private sector that can help you achieve that. And you have to take those good ideas, kind of filter them through, uh, get good advice, build a solid team, and move in the right direction. How is GSA's public buildings service adapting to changing customer expectations? I'll ask its commissioner, Dan Matthews, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dan Matthews, Commissioner of the Public Buildings Service within the U.S. General Services Administration. Dan, would you outline for us your strategic vision for GSA's Public Buildings Service? What are your key priorities for realizing this vision? So, again, um, really came back to that real simple description of what's the purpose of PBS? 
its mission and money. We're helping agencies achieve their mission by providing the real estate that they need. And we're trying to do it at a better value than they can for themselves, for, for um, their needs, but also for the taxpayer. We have a fiduciary responsibility there. So uh, again, when I was interviewed, my goal was to try and save $5 billion over the life of these transactions that we're going to be executing. And there are three primary ways we're trying to accomplish that today. The first is what we call least cost avoidance. Um, the second is our footprint optimization that really refers to our owned portfolio. Because remember, about half our portfolio is privately leased, about half of it is government owned. And the third priority is really focusing on our people, that, uh, that alignment and creating those conditions for uh, being successful. But in a nutshell, we're trying to restructure that lease portfolio. Our costs are pretty much defined by how much real estate we control. So if we want to lower the cost of real estate for our, our agencies, lower their rent bill effectively, we need to squeeze the excess capacity out of that real estate portfolio. We really focused initially on the leasing side of that portfolio. It's quite frankly, it's easier. It's the low hanging fruit. Every lease has an expiration date on it. When you get near that expiration date, that starts the conversation with the tenant. Do you really need this much square footage? Uh, our occupancy data is telling us that you're sitting at 350 square feet per person. And the industry standard for the type of work you're doing is about 180 square feet per person. So we can probably reduce a fair amount. Then that starts the conversation. You go out to the market, you negotiate a reduction that's maybe 30, 40% smaller. You put a long-term term out there into the market. You get great competition. Pricing drops, you lock them in for 15 years at a much smaller footprint, newer space, better quality, more flexible, and away you go. On our own footprint side, it's a little more difficult. We've got a lot of laws that govern um, our ability to. Uh, we also have to get access to our revenues, full access to our revenues, which I mentioned has been a challenge in order to, to properly renovate and maintain our buildings. And if we don't properly renovate or maintain them, you know, then the quality drops. It's harder to, to charge full market rents like we're supposed to do because they're not getting the same kind of quality they might get at a private sector building. So then our revenues drop and our net operating income is more challenged because older, less efficient buildings tend to be more expensive to operate than a new effective building. So we have to transform our own portfolio into a smaller, uh, better quality and more cost-effective portfolio. And then a third priority, we call it PBS pro productivity. It's really trying to invest in our people, our technologies, and our tools so that they have what they need to deliver uh, literally billions of dollars of construction projects every year, renovation projects, and uh, billions of dollars of, of new lease transactions every year. So again, those three priorities are our lease cost avoidance, uh, optimizing our own portfolio, uh, making it smaller and more cost-effective, and then what we call PVS productivity, uh, focusing on our people, and our tools and resources so they can get the job done. So as a follow-up, Dan, are there specific internal drivers and or external trends that shape and inform your strategy? Uh, yes, there are. And in many ways, the private sector of uh, uh, commercial real estate is sort of showing us the way. We're not too far behind, but we certainly are a little bit behind. Um, but they're, they're really showing the way to use technology to uh, reduce, really to identify and reduce office space demand, and then deliver that value back to the companies. And that's really the path that we're following. We know there's excess capacity in there, but if you don't have the right sort of uh, technology in place, 
It's difficult to see it and communicate that to the end user in such a way that you can build a consensus around restructuring that portfolio. Uh, when you have good occupancy data, um, it's a whole different conversation with our tenants. And in a lot of buildings we do, and uh, we can literally sit down with them. Let's say if we're in a lease, and that lease is going to be expiring in three or four years, we can show them uh, daily occupancy data for any period of time you want, six months, a year. So on the busiest day, you've got 5,000 seats in this facility, and on your absolute busiest day, 4,000 people were in your building. On your average day, 3,500 people were in the building. That identifies the excess capacity. Now, all of a sudden, you can start developing a strategy to renew that lease with a smaller lease. Or better yet, maybe even move from a lease into an owned building, a building the government's already purchased or invested in to, to construct and has fixed expenses, and it might not be fully occupied. And so you can get out of a lease altogether, reduce the cost of the federal government for federal real estate. When you used to have a leased building and an owned building, now you just have a renovated owned building. Uh, and the overall cost structure is smaller, the building's in better condition, and delivers on the need, real estate needs of the agency. Uh, so that type of technology can allow that to happen. Uh, we have it in maybe a quarter of our facilities, of our own facilities now. Fortunately, they tend to be our larger ones, so it represents a good proportion of our total housing need. But uh, we certainly could expand on that. That would also be very helpful in the coronavirus uh, environment as well. Uh, that type of technology can really help you understand where, where you may be putting too many people given the conditions in the community. And or I actually would say it'll help you avoid situations like that if you have good daily occupancy data. So, Dan, uh, as the largest public real estate organization in the United States, and from what I gather, PBS owns or leases. 8,700 assets and maintains an inventory of something on the order of 371 million square feet of rentable space. And that's a huge portfolio. I'd like to explore how you manage such a, such a huge portfolio. What performance and process improvements are you pursuing to optimize the management of this portfolio? And what efforts do you have in place to better utilize government owned space more effectively? Uh, thank you. So on the on the government side, like I said, on the lease side, it's a little bit easier, right? We just cut a rent check and they have to renovate it. All we really have to manage is how much space are we consuming and what's the price on it. A little bit simpler. On our own side, we have to do all of those things, manage our demand and supply, try and match those two up, which we talked a lot about. Uh, but then we actually have to manage that particular facility. We have to keep it in good working condition, which means you have to have good systems for understanding uh, the rent you're bringing in on a, on a particular property and what your expenses are on an ongoing basis and what your deferred capital liabilities are. And financially, we have to make sure that those three things uh, line up in such a way that we are able to produce a, uh, an operating income off of that because that creates the capital for maintaining that facility and every other owned facility in our, pro in our portfolio. So we've got a variety of, of systems to do that. Uh, but probably one of the biggest challenges we have um, is having full access to the revenues that we collect. So we collect revenues from our agencies. It goes into what's called the Federal Buildings Fund. But again, for the last nine years, uh, we haven't received full appropriations from that fund. Historically, the Federal Buildings Fund has been in existence almost 50 years. 
for over 40 of those 50 years, um, not only did we receive complete 100% access to our revenues, because we operate like a revolving fund, but every now and then Congress would add a few hundred million dollars in order to expand our portfolio, maybe to build some new land ports of entry or courthouses or a federal building somewhere. Um, but, but for the last nine years, it, it's sort of gone the opposite direction. <clears throat> They've been using us as a profit center and pulling about a billion dollars out every year from, from our uh, federal buildings fund system and, and using it for, uh, for other priorities. And that's had a consequence of our deferred capital liabilities have been growing significantly. And that creates a real fundamental financial risk to that, the federal real estate system. Um, we, we only can generate a certain amount of net operating income a year. And if that deferred capital liability gets too large, uh, that, that rate of, um, of capital generation is not going to be large enough to uh, attack that large of a deferred capital liability. So it's something we're keeping a close eye on. It has me personally quite concerned going on for nine years now. And we're trying to articulate that to our, our uh, stakeholders, our partners, both the administration with LMB, uh, who's always been very supportive of, of getting us full access to our revenues, and to Congress as well. So that they understand the long-term consequences of those actions, uh, it just put the whole system in financial jeopardy. So Dan, with over half of GSA lease space expiring within the next five years, uh, you will definitely be increasing cost savings by utilizing a wider range of strategies. What are some of those strategies? Yeah, it was our number one priority because of that. Uh, literally over half of our leases were expiring in a five-year time period uh, when we arrived. And that creates a tremendous opportunity to restructure that portfolio. Um, and that's what we've been really focused on. Um, and the strategy is, is really um, threefold. So one, it's reducing that footprint. Um, daily occupancy data, again, helps there. Working with our customers to show them that what they actually control at the moment, um, they could probably achieve their mission with a significantly smaller portfolio. So you reduce the amount of space that we're leasing over time. And then the other strategy is to get better pricing. So that's where the long firm terms comes into play. We've also relied heavily on our commercial real estate brokers. So at the Public Building Service, we have a contract with several real estate firms, some of the really big national names, but also some small business firms as well in different markets where we use them to negotiate on behalf of the federal government with private sector landlords. And that has uh, the combination of longer firm terms, focusing on our really big leases. Uh, so we replace those at a minimum when they expire, long-term solutions and using our commercial real estate brokers has really uh, allowed us to get much better pricing. So when you get better pricing per foot on a smaller footprint, that yields massive savings. Uh, we have already cut over 4 million rentable square feet from our expiring lease portfolio since September 2017. And that has delivered over the life of those leases compared to the larger footprint that we had before. Uh, that's going to save um, over $3 billion over the firm term of those leases. So it's been, uh, that's really been our, our strategy on the leasing side. And the best solution is if we can concentrate maybe some of our capital on an own building that has a high uh, vacancy rate or uh, underutilization, and we will invest in that building, maybe restack it, so we'll free up several floors, renovate it so it's in better quality, and then just eliminate a lease altogether and move them into a federal building, which 
taxpayer already owns. So, Dan, we would normally do this in person in our studio, but we are in the midst of a pandemic. And uh, so I was wondering, how is PBS adapting to the changing customer expectations arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic? And more importantly, what type of new services will you be offering or looking to offer to your clients as they get back into the office, like sort of like occupancy tracking or improved air circulation? What are you doing? Sure. It's a great question. And I guess right off the bat, I would say um, PBS just as a whole actually was able to respond to the new conditions of, of essentially mandatory telework for a large proportion of our, of our workforce quite well. Um, GSA has made an investment in IT technology over the years. We all have mobile devices or we, we don't use paper for the most part. So we were able to, to turn very quickly from an on-presence, uh, in-facility type of presence to an out-of-facility, uh, a remote work. Of course, we, we are in a real estate business, so we have people that are in buildings. They have to be in buildings to operate buildings. So about 10% of our workforce is on site, always has been, they never left. Uh, <clears throat> we've got critical facilities in the federal inventory. They have to stay open. Just think FEMA operation centers, HHS's operation centers, things like that. So we support those facilities. Um, Longer term, though, you know, uh, or, or short term, I should say, some facilities have had to stay open because they're delivering really uh, critical, essential functions of the federal government. And so very early on, we enhanced our cleaning per CDC guidance, both in facilities uh, on a routine basis, but also when you have a suspected or confirmed case of uh, COVID-19 in the facility, we will then have enhanced cleaning, uh, again, uh, per CDC guidelines so that those facilities can get back up and running as quickly as possible. Uh, we've also um, helped in a very, very quick fashion develop some uh, sort of redundant duplicate facilities for some of those critical types of things that just can't go down, operation centers, things like that. Uh, we've also developed enhanced entry screening tools for agencies if they decide if they want to do that. Uh, think temperature uh, screening and, and various type of medical uh, questionnaires before people are allowed uh, entrance into a facility. We have some contracts in place uh, and vehicles in place for agencies if they, they feel that's necessary for them. They can quickly implement that. Uh, we also can, uh, we have daily occupancy sensors in a lot of facilities, but we also have the ability to install them pretty quickly if, if that would be helpful for agencies to ensure that you know, they're not getting into a situation where if maybe, let's just say they're at phase two, they may in their phase two return to facilities plan may have a, a 25 or a 30 percent sort of occupancy ceiling. They don't want to exceed that while they're in, in a phase two environment. And so occupancy data can really help ensure that on a daily basis, the tracking to see how close they're getting to that 30 percent. So they need to give uh, new guidance out to their employees, or maybe they're finding that they're not anywhere close to 30 percent. And so they're able to socially distance uh, effectively. So that type of information can be very useful. We understand that the PBS business model may be changing in ways that you did not necessarily envision six months ago. How is PBS preparing for a future where their clients may reduce their real estate footprint? And how will PBS align their fixed costs against reduced lease and rent revenues? That's a great question. The commercial real estate industry is very much uh, struggling with these new realities right now. It's not just the federal government. But in the short term, right, it's really about managing occupancy. Uh, you want to keep the density down and keep socially distanced, given your mission requirements. Uh, and so the types of things I already discussed are, are how we're doing that. 
But longer term, I think this giant experiment uh, in, in telework uh, is showing a lot of agencies and, and businesses, for that matter, what is possible. Productivity, if you're an organization that made investments in IT and, and sort of eliminating the connection to a paper-based process, uh, those organizations are, are, are operating with, with pretty limited impacts on their productivity. And I think it's safe to say, if you look two, three, four, five years into the future, there are going to be cost pressures on organizations, on government agencies. Budgets are going to be tight. And so agencies are going to have to make challenging choices about where they prioritize their resources. And at PBS, GSA, we want to be in a position to help agencies manage those difficult choices, to show them where there may be excess capacity, in our case, in real estate, where they can achieve their mission. The real estate that they need to achieve their mission may actually be quite a bit smaller than what they currently consume. And by showing them that how to do that in terms of uh, uh, occupancy data, but also flexibility. I think agencies are, and, and or this is again, private sector is, is doing the same thing. Uh, what will the, the real estate footprint look like if it's smaller? It probably will need to be more flexible because oftentimes the reasons why people may need to come into the office, uh, if they're able to, to work kind of heads down to be productive. So coming into the office, the primary purpose may be those types of collaborative activities that you don't get in a giant cubicle form. So the space that's laid out into the future may need to be more flexible to meet another changing demands or requirements. And we can help them through that. There are uh, lots of different ways to help uh, uh, manage that real estate portfolio so that it's smaller, but it's also more flexible to meet whatever their uh, requirements are for in-purpose work uh, in the future. So, Dan, GSA always promotes the adoption of innovative workplace solutions. The industry trend of late has been towards open space layout. Given the pandemic, the need to social distance, coupled with research indicating an increase in stress amongst staff working in completely open floor plans. Do you see a shift in the trend to a more hybrid approach to an office layout and design? I think it's going to depend on a lot of different factors. One, uh, what type of work is going on? Uh, we have a very diverse real estate portfolio. I didn't think about it. We have land ports of entry. We have courthouses. We have laboratories. We have office space. We have operation centers. So it, I think it will really depend a lot depending on the mission, the function that's actually taking place uh, in the workspace. In, in some locations, and I think it's probably going to be the minority of locations, there may be a need for, uh, for more space um, in order to maintain, uh, at least in the short to midterm, while we're more dealing with um, coronavirus, a um, greater social distancing. But I think in a lot of space, because the, the need to be in the office full time, I think it's been demonstrated that uh, that might not be necessary. It can still be productive. That creates an opportunity to um, have less space overall because the actual in-person demand is less. But the only way you can achieve that reduction is if you 
break the link from an individual person to an individual workspace, a, a desk somewhere, an office. When you start unassigning seating, then your supply of seats just has to meet your peak demand, uh, as opposed to your supply of seats have to meet the demand of every person that comes into the workplace at some point in time. That's really the key. That's where the private sector is probably quite a bit ahead of, of the government. They, they've understood that, that critical element. That allows them to reshape that portfolio. Some federal agencies have done that. Uh, GSA was a very early adopter of that. If you look at our headquarters, very few people have assigned seats. Um, the vast majority of the workforce doesn't. We also have an open works, workspace. But what that does allow us to do, if you think about it, because people aren't assigned to a particular workspace, let's say you're going to go to 30% occupancy. Well, you don't want that 30% of the people all clustered into like one portion of the building. You want them to socially distance throughout the building. If your building's laid out with offices and cubicles where everyone has their own desktop computer and their own file drawer there, you just made it really difficult to actually spread out in that facility because everyone goes back to their own assigned space because that's where the things are located that they need to do their job. Uh, GSA doesn't work that way. We've got a laptop and we've got uh, a mobile, mobile device and we, when we show up at work, we or we can reserve it ahead of time, but we can sit out almost anywhere in the building. We have flexibility in our workspace. We can spread out, socially distance easily, the drop of a hat. Not everyone can do that, depending on how that linkage is from an individual to their the tools that they work with and, and where they're assigned. That flexibility, I think, is going to be really important, not just for achieving a, a value in the future, but also to help us through uh, this time period where we're, where we're dealing with uh, coronavirus in the community. How is the pandemic changing the way federal office space is designed and managed? I will ask Dan Matthews, Commissioner of the Public Buildings Service at the U.S. General Services Administration, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dan Matthews, Commissioner of the Public Buildings Service within the U.S. General Services Administration. Dan, the GSA's Public Buildings Service is responsible for promoting effective use of federal real property assets. 
and it plays a critical role in the disposal of real property that is no longer mission critical to federal agencies. Can you tell us more about the progress being made in this area of disposing real property? Well, let me just say, remind uh, everyone again, so we've cut uh, over 4 million square feet from our lease portfolio uh, since September 2017. Um, that's a big reduction. It delivers about $160 million every year in rental payments that tenant agencies are not paying, and the federal government is not cutting to the private sector. It's a lot of money every year. It's going to keep returning savings year after year. In our own portfolio, it is a little bit more difficult. But fortunately, in December 2016, Congress passed a, a bill. It's called uh, FASTA is the, the acronym, but it's Federal Asset Sale and Transfer uh, Act. And it basically created a, a, a pilot program where they would remove some of the restrictions that exist in statute on selling or disposing of federal real property. And there's a there's an independent board that was created, and their task was in a first round of property sales to recommend properties that, that total uh, somewhere between $500 and $750 million of estimated market value of property for sale. We support that board in their daily operations um, with a real estate uh, assessment, with reviewing real estate portfolios, recommending properties for disposals. We have a very close working relationship with them. Uh, they have made their first round recommendation, uh, OMB approved it. And so now we are in the process of working with the board to actually execute on those property sales. So that's a real significant opportunity that didn't exist uh, several years ago. It's in progress and uh, I have a lot of optimism that it's going to uh, deliver uh, a smaller footprint for the federal government and a uh, real uh, value for the taxpayer. As uh, the Public Buildings Service continues to concentrate on right-sizing its portfolio and improving portfolio performance, how are you using analytic practices and tools to be successful in this area? Well, <laughs> out of a, a fear of a, over uh, repeating something, but daily occupancy, you need to know what your true demand is for the real estate so you can match up to the supply. But then once you get beyond that, um, you need to have good financial systems and good building operating systems to understand what's it really costing you to operate a facility and what are the um, reinvestment needs for that particular property. Uh, and then what are you charging for rent? And you have to be able to analyze all that to, to make good, sound decisions about where you're going to put your scarce capital, particularly since we don't get full access to our uh, our revenues. That means our capital for reinvestment is, is less than it otherwise would be. So we have to be particularly careful to put it in the right places. What kind of return on investment are we getting in a project? I'll just give you an example. We could have a choice of having a federal building that um, may have a, a maybe 20% vacancy, meaning we're not collecting rent on that. And it may require a moderate level of reinvestment. And then we may have a lease in that same neighborhood, private sector lease where we are writing a check to private sector building owners every month. And if we could take a certain amount of capital and invest it in that owned building, we could perhaps restack some of the tenants, consolidate them in that building to free up more vacant space while we're also improving the quality of that property. And that creates the opportunity to shut that private sector lease down, move the tenant into the owned federal building, collect rent on the entire building now, as opposed to just a portion of it, and hopefully even a slightly higher rent because we just improved the facilities in better condition. 
So now that building may have been a marginal, we may have been losing money on that building. We're just barely breaking even. So now we're actually making a profit in that operating income, which then creates capital for reinvestment in another property so we can re repeat that. A project like that would have a strong return on investment. Now there could be other projects out there where that same dollars, the same capital could be invested in, in a, a property somewhere and not have any of those additional benefits. So the return would be considerably smaller. Uh, so we don't have enough capital to do everything. We have to be uh, very discriminating in where we pick and choose to put that money. GSA is working with federal agencies to identify opportunities for co-location and consolidation of agency office spaces. Can you tell us more about what's happening in this area? It does happen. Um, it's not consistent across all our tenant agencies, but there are several agencies that I would, I would sort of describe as the, the coalition of the, of the willing, right? That they see the opportunity and perhaps the necessity on their side. Um, to achieve greater value in their real estate portfolio, um, to, to free up resources for, for other things. And just to, to give one example, the Department of Homeland Security is a very large real estate portfolio. It's very diverse as well. And um, they also experience significant budget pressures and uh, a really significant operational mission. So they're making, uh, because their real estate portfolio is so large, they're making difficult choices on an ongoing basis between real estate or people. And mission. And so they've been uh, working with us very closely in the national capital region, but also across the country to help identify areas where maybe they do have excess capacity in their real estate portfolio. They're mining um, our daily occupancy data, their daily occupancy data. Uh, there's a variety of different ways um, uh, to collect that type of data to tell us what, what really happens in the building every day, how much excess capacity might be there. And they've been uh, working with their different components. They have identified some real significant opportunities uh, working with us to reduce our private sector lease portfolio and to consolidate into some own properties. In Washington, D.C., you know, we're building their headquarters out. Uh, so that's government-owned construction. And we have a lot of leases in the D.C. area. And so that has, been, has created an opportunity to, to get out of some of those leases and move them into these own buildings. And what they've learned by really reviewing some of their occupancy data is, is they thought they might be able to put a certain number of people into a new building we're building. And now they're realizing, boy, they can put 20, maybe 30% more people into that same facility um, just because they're looking at the data and they're seeing that, you know, 30% of the people aren't there every day. So they don't need to accommodate everybody having a seat at the same time in this own building. And that's creating real uh, a value for them and for the taxpayer. So, Dan, switching from the current office space that's available and managing that effectively to the constructing of new buildings, and I'd like to turn to that, what are the plans for constructing new buildings? And are there any significant modernization efforts that aim to be completed within the next few years? How has the pandemic impacted project timelines and what mitigation strategies have you followed to ensure the safety of work crews to meet those deadlines? Yeah, we were very concerned about that at the beginning. Um, we have um, under construction at any moment uh, over two, almost like $3 billion of active construction projects going on across the country. And the total value of that construction, of those projects, I should say, is over $7 billion. So there's, there's a lot of work in progress. 
and in construction times money. So delays oftentimes translates into uh, uh, cost overruns. And we only have so much money and <laughs> we can't afford to have every project go 20% over budget. We wouldn't be able to deliver all those projects if that happened. So uh, we've done a, a number of things. First, we were in very close communication with our, uh, our construction partners and they are in close communication with their subcontractors. And we also, you know, we operate in states. And early on, some states put out uh, statewide orders that basically said all construction had to stop. Even though we're the federal government, we're exempt from statewide orders, but not every state realized that initially. And so we actually had to work with different states to, and the Department of Justice to help them understand that actually federal real estate is a mission, mission essential to exempt from those, those orders, and we actually need to be able to continue those, those projects. Uh, but it's also critical to continue those projects in a safe manner. So uh, our, a lot of our construction companies, essentially what they had to do is sort of decrease the density on site. They instituted a whole variety of, of worksite uh, uh, cleaning protocols, um, operational protocols. So they're, they're maintaining social distancing. You know, they don't have huddles at different times that they normally would on the construction site. Uh, maybe instead of having 100 people on site during a certain phase, they only have 50 people on site during that phase. So it does take a little bit longer to get that work done, but um, they're maintaining uh, socially distanced uh, pra work practices so that they don't end up with a suspected or confirmed case and have to shut the whole site down. Um, we did have a few instances where, where sites were shut down for, uh, um, for uh, statewide orders, but uh, after a couple of weeks, we were able to work with the companies and with the states to get those construction sites back up and running. We have seen We've seen a slowdown in um, a certain percentage of our projects, but uh, it, it doesn't look like we are seeing at this point a significant uh, cost implications. So uh, fingers crossed, it looks like it's going pretty well so far. So Dan, reflecting on your leadership uh, in the midst of a pandemic, can you tell us how you continue to keep your employees focused and motivated in the face of dramatic, sometimes painful changes? And how have you sought to ensure that PBS continues to fulfill its mission and deliver results? Well, I think we really try and connect them to the mission, right? So they can see how their daily activities really contribute to our important outcome that we're doing. And in a pandemic, uh, if you think about it, the activities that are going on in our facilities are absolutely essential to dealing with this pandemic. Um, the White House complex is, is a facility of ours. Um, the pandemic task force is meeting there on a regular basis. We have to make sure that it's clean and, and operating. Uh, we have um, the HHS operation centers, FEMA operation centers, CDC facilities, uh, uh, National Institute of Health facilities um, that we have to keep open. And then there's all sorts of other just critical things that the federal government does day in, day out. That if it stopped happening, uh, our economy wouldn't function. So if anything, it's really, I think people appreciate just how important the work is that they do on a daily basis. And we really try and remind them that on a regular basis. And, and now in a way it's easier to do because they can see the direct relationship. Uh, and we also need to support our people. Um, we, um, we support them in their ability to work offsite so that they've got the right IT, the right, right tools and, and components so they can get their work done. I made as part of our PBS productivity priority, a real emphasis on, on getting the resources that we need. We were understaffed in a couple areas and um, we articulated our case to OMB and then to Congress that uh, 
we really don't have enough to get the work done here. This is really important work. And if we don't get it done, it actually costs the taxpayer more than the extra resources to get the work done. They agreed. And um, uh, we, we were able to receive those extra resources. And we've actually been hiring some extra people in these areas. And so I think that just all demonstrates to our workforce that we have their best interests at heart. We want to make sure that they stay safe and, and capable of delivering on this really important mission for uh, federal government and the American public. So, Dan, you've pointed out throughout our conversation that your customer's satisfaction is key. What are you doing to engage the customers, and how have you been able to be more responsive to providing services to the end user? We talked a, a, a number of uh, earlier earlier on about a number of things we've been doing to try and ensure that the uh, facilities are being cleaned to CDC guidance, uh, and that we're providing the, the equipment that they need to get that done. And uh, if we have a suspect or confirmed case, we're in there quickly. Uh, again, uh, following CDC guidance to ensure that uh, they can reopen soon. And if you know, our measure of that really is the customer feedback and. Um, we've been pleasantly surprised uh, that notwithstanding just kind of the difficult situations that we're all living in, working in, uh, we've been getting really good feedback from our customer agencies about how responsive we've been when they have a, a, a suspected or confirmed case, because it, it happens and it's going to continue to happen as long as coronavirus is the prevalence that it does in our, our community, because there's essential government work that's going on. And, um, you know, it happens here just like it happens elsewhere in the, in the community. And, and we've been getting really good feedback that we're, we're responsive, we're communicating, and we get them back up and running quickly. And um, so I think all in all, uh, it, it's, it's going, it's, I think, better than we would have expected given the conditions we're operating under. Dan, what are some of the major opportunities and challenges your organization will encounter in the future? And how do you envision your agency will evolve to meet those challenges and seize those opportunities? As the agencies probably realize they don't need as much real estate as they, they thought they did. Uh, on the privately leased section of that portfolio, it's a lot easier to um, to let that space go over time. But if it's in our own portfolio, um, that's going to be more challenging. Um, again, the way we're set up, we have to operate like a business, meaning that we have to generate an operating profit in order to operate our facilities. So, if a whole lot of space was returned really quickly, um, that that could be challenging. And so we need to uh, really stay in close communication with our tenants to understand uh, what their needs are going to be in the future. And we need to be working to uh, reposition our, our portfolio and use the tools that Congress gave us not too long ago to dispose of properties when we don't have a need for them. Um, because uh, we have to make all that work and manage that shrinking demand shrinking revenues, right? That's what that's going to mean over time. I think that's really quite likely. Uh, and we need to uh, uh, restructure that portfolio, both owned and leased, so that it's smaller, better quality, uh, with fewer uh, deferred capital liabilities. And um, uh, uh, it has to remain profitable. That's going to be a challenge. So, Dan, one last question. Um, what advice would you give someone who is considering a career in public service? Uh, well, I, um, my father was a, a, a career Navy pilot, uh, and so I, I very much grew up in an environment where uh, public service was valued, and uh, that, I think, appealed to me, a sense of uh, purpose and uh, service and, and duty to, to join public service, and I think that's really important. Um, 
people need to be here for the right reasons, so to speak. And uh, uh, that's really critical. I'd also say on a more on a practical basis, uh, when you're in the federal government, always look for opportunities to help your organization excel, right? Pursue excellence, be motivated. Um, that's really important. And when you do that, people notice, it stands out. Um, it, it, uh, it advances the organization, but it also advances your own personal prospects. And then finally, I'd say, you know, don't be afraid. Uh, don't be afraid to bring and utilize private sector skills and knowledge into federal work, whether it's because you're moving from the private sector into uh, government service or government service into the private sector, and maybe at some point you return again, or you know maybe you manage government programs and you have the opportunity to bring in private sector expertise through consultancy contracts or or things like that. Um, the federal government uh, has a really important uh, mission set, and it's, it's critical that we get the best uh, uh, information and knowledge and techniques and practices into the federal government. Uh, don't be afraid to do that, because at the end of the day, it's all about mission and money. And we want the, the federal government to effectively provide the mission to the American people, and we have a fiduciary responsibility. We need to do that at the best possible value uh, for the American taxpayer. Dan, that's wonderful advice. I want to thank you for joining us today. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again in the future sometime. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dan Matthews, Commissioner of the Public Buildings Service at the U.S. General Services Administration. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, an in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.